everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Bielenson Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are back after a couple week hiatus, a little traveling between the both of us, a little vacations. Always a privilege to have with me, my co-host and Hall of Famer, Mr. Steve Flink. Steve, you still look great after a couple of weeks. I hope neither of us changed uh, that much while we took a couple of weeks off. I, I, I suspect we aged a little, but not much. Well, I mean, we have got a lot to catch up on. I mean, there was some unbelievable tennis in Washington, D.C. this week. Um, we have some unbelievable early round matches in both Montreal and Toronto, which we're going to get to. Before we get to that, I want to take a step back briefly um, because we haven't we haven't talked in a couple of weeks. I know Newport is such an, a special event for you. Um, they do all the Hall of Fame activities during that tournament. You were there. Um, anything you want to share with with your uh, most recent visit? It was a very poignant. So, well, one just briefly, it was fun to catch up with the likes of Yvonne Lendl and Patrick Rafter and so, some of the Hall of Famers who were there for different reasons who came back for this ceremony. And it was particularly enjoyable to see the two wheelchair players going. Esther Vergier, who won her last, I believe, 470 career matches, which is crazy. That's it. That's it. Yeah, that's all. And Rick Dramey, the two of them gave such magnificent speeches that it, even though they were the only ones to go in, they did themselves proud. They did the sport proud. So it was a nice ceremony, and I, I was glad to be back again. No, that's so great. And I know how much you enjoy going down there every summer. So, um, Glad it went well. Atlanta was the following tournament. No, Mr. John Isner did not win it this year. <laughs> Usually that's his tournament. Um, shout out University of Illinois, Alex Vukic for having a tremendous week getting to the final where he fought Taylor Fritz very, very close. Taylor had a great week as well. Taylor wins that match in three tight sets. He did. And, and, <laughs> It was particularly nice to see Taylor after a difficult time in Europe and he didn't play his best. He'd been admired in something of a slump by his standards. So to win Atlanta was a big step. And then he got to the semifinals in Washington to follow up. I think that the congested schedule caught up with him. He had to play two matches in one day, the day that he beat Andy Murray. And so by the time he lost to Greeks four in the semis, I think he was a bit spent, but still a good productive two weeks confidence building two weeks for Fritz. So now it'll be very interesting to see him in the two masters 1000s, assuming he does go through his commitments and plays in both Canada and Cincinnati. I, I got to believe he could do something significant in at least one of them. And I do want to mention, you know, Chris Eubanks who played tennis at Georgia tech. He loves that tournament in Atlanta. He lost, I believe in the quarters. Yeah. He lost in the quarters to, Alex Vukic, this is becoming some sort of a rivalry, Steve, because if you remember when we chatted back in Delray, when I was there on site, they played each other twice in the same mm -hmm. tournament. And some people will ask, well, how did that happen? Well, they played in the final round of qualifying. Chris beat Vukic in three tough sets. Vukic winds up getting in as a lucky loser. Who does he face in the first round? None other than Chris Eubanks. Vukic beat Chris in the first round of that match in three sets. So they're having a fun little rivalry. But again, um, shout out University of Illinois. I'm friendly with the coaches there and, and Brad Dancer, who you know, and through, you know, Kevin Anderson and, and whatnot. Um, first class, 100%. So always good to see something uh, really, really special coming out of uh, University of Illinois. Well, also, it, it's, it's fun to be following 
Eubanks now. He's got a lot to live up to after what he did in England on the grass, but, you know, getting to the quarters of Wimbledon and nearly toppling Medvedev after beating Tsitsipas. So he's, he, he's now a, a scalp to be considered, as they say. In other words, he's a bigger win for a lot of other players than he, than he would have been a month or two ago. But I'm just happy to see him in this position where he's still very likely to get seated at the U.S. Open, and he's just made uh, improved by leaps and bounds this year. 100% agree. Okay, let, let's head over to Washington, D.C., because I thought there was such good tennis. And I want to start with a previous guest that we had on our pod, Jen Brady. How mm. nice was it to see her back on court? She plays doubles with Madison Keys. Unfortunately, they wound up facing each other in singles. First set was tight. Madison Keys won the second pretty easily. Um, probably expected with Jen just slowly starting to come back here. But um, Gosh, we had her on a while ago, Steve, and she was trying, she wouldn't give us a time frame, but she was edging to come back. And it's, it's been almost two years, Steve. No, what a, what a sad, it, to, to have an injury of that kind of duration, it, it's shocking. It, and it must've been demoralizing for her at times. On the other hand, she's still so young and I'm sure she's re- revitalized now after so much time away. And I, I hope we see that, that, the, the the Jen Brady that we watched playing Osaka in the semifinals of the U.S. Open about three years ago because that's that that player is top ten material. Let's hope so. I wanted to mention Alina Svitolina. She had the great Wimbledon. She beat Azarenka at that great match in Wimbledon. She plays her in D.C. in the first round, beats her again. She beat the fifth seed Kasakina on Wednesday. That's her fifth top twenty win in two months. Jesse Pagula eventually beat her in three sets, but Svitolina coming back, great, great job so far. And may I add, I watched the most of the Jesse Pagula match against Svitolina. It's one of the highest quality women's matches I've seen across the entire season. Both of them played extremely well. And then once again, the Pagula match against Sakari was quite special as well. So, But yeah, Svitolina, you could see the great mutual respect between Swidalina and Pagula and the way they greeted each other afterwards and the things that Pagula had to say about Swidalina were, were remarkable. You know, the, she, she lauded her to the hilt as well as she should have. The next player I want to mention is the person who won this tournament, and that's Miss Coco Goff. Beats Belinda Benchic, 6-1, 6-2 in the quarters. Beats Maria Sakari today, what, 6-2, 6-3. Had a tremendous week, served well. The forehand was, uh, I mean, it, it, watching it from the outside, it was not a stressor for me to watch every ball that would go to her forehand. How was she going to handle it? I mean, she played the forehand great. She has Brad Gilbert now, part of the coaching team on, you know, it's kind of a consulting basis, but he did say he's going to be in Washington. I'm sorry. He was in Washington. He is going to be in, where are the women? In Montreal, right? The men yeah. are in Toronto. The women are in Montreal. And he's also going to be with her in Cincinnati. So, um, wow, Coco Goff, impressive. Well, you know, you, you referred to the forehand, and obviously she's aware. She's so astutely aware of how everybody in the tennis world has been talking about that shot and the extreme Western grip and how she can find a way to, to shore up on that side. Well, I don't know if it was Gilbert's encouragement or any kind of technical advice that he gave her, but there was a big safety net on the forehand uh, that I noticed over the last three matches those, uh, that enabled her to win this title. And she was not going for too much. She was just trying to get it back deep, 
wait for the opening to really crack the much flatter backhand that she's got. And it just seemed to free her up. She served better. Everything came together. Served really well. She wasn't living in constant fear of missing the forehand. Now, she mishit a few in the final against the card, but very few. It was, and I think it was the other thing about the loop on it is it makes it difficult for someone like Sakari when uh, Coco is getting such good depth on that forehand with the heavy spin for Sakari to, te- to take it early, step in and really use her for- forehand to full effect to hit winners the way she did against Pagula in the semis. So I hope that uh, Coco can, can sustain this standard. And it's interesting because I think of when Brad Gilbert started off with Andy Roddick. 20 years ago and uh he, he they immediately it started to gel he saved a match point against agassi in the semis at queens and won the tournament semis of wimbledon next thing you know he's won five out of seven tournaments including his lone grand slam title at the u.s open so gilbert seems to have a way of stepping in with players and having immediate success and i don't think it's an accident by the way i think he's going to have a really powerful effect on coco's who seems to get a kick out of him, but also appreciate the depth of his knowledge. So I'm really happy that they got off to such a tremendous start. And, you know, watching the match today, Sakari went after Coco's forehand, uh, you know, a a few times, more than a few times, and and the forehand held up. I'm eager to see how that forehand will hold up against the elite, the elite, the best, the top one, two, three, who will continue to go at her forehand. And if she can hold up during that type of intense pressure, to me, I mean, my gosh, the sky's the limit because that's what has been holding her back. Yeah, the most interesting player to watch in terms of what you're talking about and alluding to would be the next time she end up, might end up playing Iga Swiatek in Canada. We'll see if it comes off. But that would be the fascinating test because Iga puts tremendous pressure with her forehand onto Coco's forehand. And is she going to have as much success as she has in the past against Coco with that tactic? We'll see. You're right. That's going to be the telltale sign. Sakari, yes. And frankly, it was there the last three rounds. It was remarkably solid. Now we have to see, can it, can, how does she do it against the very best woman player in the world? in the forehand to forehand exchanges. Exactly. And, and Maria Sakri, I mean, in another good tournament. Look, she snapped, she snapped a seven match losing streak um, in WTA semifinals. I don't think she played very well today against Coco. That said, I think Coco had a lot to do um, with Sakari not being able to play the way she wanted to. Um, I was going to be happy for either one in those, uh, whoever won that match today. Um she just uh, Maria. I don't know. We 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 say this if it's all between the years because you look at her semifinal record, it's not very good. You look at her finals record, it's not very good. On the other side, it's like if you're constantly putting yourself in a position to be in the latter stages of tournaments, eventually percentages are going to play out, and you're going to start winning those. Um, a question I wanted to raise to you, and I want to be careful how I say this because I, I I think people could just hear it on its face and think it's critical, and I. I don't, I don't want this to come off as critical. You know that I am a very big fan of both Grigor Dimitrov and Maria Sakri. I predicted Maria would win a Grand Slam, what, last year or two years ago, whenever I made those predictions. You know how much I, I, I enjoy watching Maria play. But when I, when, I, when I look at Grigor and I look at Maria, and again, Grigor's been on tour a lot longer than, than, than Sakri has, they both do everything really well. But do they have like one weapon? Like they've had tremendous careers, Steve. 
I would sell out for either one of those careers. A lot of people would sell out for either one of those careers. So again, I don't want this to sound critical, but can you compare? And again, she has a lot more years ahead of her. Is Maria Sakari maybe going to be the Grigor Dimitrov of the WTA tour and that she's going to have a fantastic career? She may just fall a little short of the most um, elite, the, the, the best tournaments, the slams. I, I'm not ready to make that conclusion. I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I think that, that a good case can be made. That's what makes sports so fascinating. We both could be proven wrong and both of us would probably like to be proven wrong. She's such an appealing player and so capable and so quick. And I do love the, the firepower she has off the forehand. She can open up the court and lace the two-hand or cross-court for winners. Her serve is usually impressive, although I have to say I think it let her down a lot in, in Washington, having real issues with the toss. And she was down a break early against Coco in the first set and got it back and then immediately lost her serve to go down 4-2. Second set, similar, up a break twice and unable to make good on it either time. And she kept looking over to her corner and practicing the toss and something was wrong there. But as far as your overall assessment, she's surrounded by a lot of gifted players out there, David. So it's never going to be that easy. She's going to be in the forefront. She's going to, she could probably stay in the top 10. She could probably be a consistent top 10 player for a long, long time. Is she going to win majors? I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I'm skeptical as well, unless someone is able to sort of, find that magical, what, whatever it's going to take to get her to, but I agree with you. She doesn't have one overwhelmingly powerful shot. She has a very good serve, but it's not, it's, it's not going to necessarily carry her to a major title. So you say, what will, well, willpower, match playing prowess. There are a lot of things that could get her there, but there's no getting around the fact that the, the, the players she'll be surrounded by in the top five to 10, are going to be playing on, a, on an equal basis with her, maybe sometimes superior. So it will not be easy. But you can tell how much the other players like her. You can hear it in Coco's speech today, how, how, how she lauded um, Sakari for how well Maria had treated her ever from the time she came on the tour. And you can see how much they respect her tennis as well. So I, I, I but I think it's a very reasonable point you're making. You know, if we're going to be, totally analytical about this. Can she make that leap to the point where she's winning tournaments and most importantly, winning major tournaments that that remains to be seen. I hope she does. Um, I hope she can get over the hump again. Like I said, if you keep getting into the latter stage of the tournament, you hope percentages play itself out. And you mentioned the tough competition competition that she's, she has to deal with in today's game. Again, Grigor had to deal with the big three, right? So it wasn't easy for Grigor Dimitrov. He's, uh, no, neither. Exactly. And it's funny when you bring him up, I can't help, but I can never forget sitting, being in my second visit to the Australian Open in 2017 and watching him battle Rafa for nearly five hours in the semis. In some ways, he may have cost Rafa that title, by the way. He played him toe to toe for nearly five hours, lost in five sets, and then Rafa lost to Roger in the final, despite leading 3 1 in the fifth. And I honestly think Grigor took a lot out of him on that occasion. And then I remember Grigor beating Roger, the 2019 U.S. Open, before losing to Medvedev in the semifinals there. So, yes, it could end up being a comparable kind of career. If that's the case, David, she would have nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, exactly. And that's what I was trying to kind of say when I when I prefaced this topic. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, best, I, I, I love both those, both those players. And I hope they hope they do get over the hump. I really do. All right, let's go to the men's side now in DC. Um, two players that, that, that have been struggling and that's Sebastian Corda and that's Felix Ajir Aliasim. You know, seven quarter started so strong in Australia. We've said it a lot of times, beats Medvedev, um, makes that run with several other Americans in Australia. And it's just been tough sledding uh, for Seve. And let's just hope he, he gets healthy. And same same with Felix. Yeah, obviously, in addition to that, that Sebi had had the match point against Novak in Adelaide in the finals there. So he played so brilliantly in Australia that wrist injury couldn't have been more untimely, if there is such a word, because he was just beginning to feel it. And I have a feeling he would have built on that early season success and done some great things. He lost a lot of time since the comeback, has not been able to recapture the same form. So I hope, I hope, particularly in his case, I hope he turns it around soon. He's got opportunities coming up on the hard courts, but he needs to make a move relatively soon. And Felix is playing in his home country coming up. So hopefully that yeah. can maybe uh, push start him because we all know the athlete, you know, just look at him, just look at him from the eye test, like what an athlete he can be. And, and you know, the, there's been several slams that, that Felix has played in where He's played the elite elite to the very, very brink of winning and just fallen a little bit short. His time will come, I think. He just needs to get healthy, obviously. Absolutely. And we saw him, you know, we saw him at the U.S. Open a couple of years ago making the semis, losing to Medvedev. Had a match point against Medvedev in the Australian a year or two ago. And he should be, he, he's something, there's some kind of lingering doubt in his mind right now. He's questioning himself. I don't think physically there appears to be anything wrong, but mentally he's way below where he was. And I just think it's going to take one or two decent tournaments for him to sort of get back, reacquire the habit of winning. They all talk about that, that winning is a habit at that level. Unfortunately, losing can also become a habit. It has lately for feelings, which is a shame because he's one of the most complete players in the men's game. And when he's on, He's such, he's such a joy to watch. And we saw how brilliantly he concluded the 2022 season. And I'd like to see that Felix reemerge soon. And the other player I want to talk about is, you know, whenever he's playing, you got to block off at least three, three and a half hours because you know it's going to be an absolute war. And that's Andy Murray. He played a match versus Taylor Fritz, which, you know, a typical Andy Murray match. He just fought like hell. Um, it took a long, long time. It's a little, you know, uh, came up a little bit short. And again, it's just, even if he wins that, how's his body going to respond in the next match? And he would have to play twice that day, Steve, because if you remember, Taylor played only a couple hours later, he beat Jordan Thompson. Yeah. Would Andy, how would Andy's body hold up if he had beaten Taylor and had to come out a few hours later? Yeah, I might not. He couldn't have played much better against Taylor. And Taylor finally got the critical break at the tail end of the third set and served it out at 5-4 and but boy, I mean, Andy stole the first set from Taylor when Taylor had three set points and served for the first set and lost to Andy in a tie break. And then Taylor uh, managed to come back uh, sternly from there. But yeah, it was another impressive performance. Frankly, it was reminiscent in some ways to me of how well he played against Tsitsipas in, at Wimbledon once again. You know, when the, when the chips were on the line, his opponent was better. It's no knock on Andy because the fact that he could be playing this well I mean, it's a great testament to him and his determination, but I agree with you. Had he succeeded against Taylor physically, it was going to be a very tough turnaround to play another match that night and then come back the next day. Unlikely he could have pulled it off. And the Washington DC hometown hero, Francis 
Tiafa would have loved to do a little bit better in this tournament. He did have a bunch of highlights during the week, but he lost to Dan Evans. And 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 Tiafo gave Dan Evans credit. He's like, frankly, he played great. There wasn't that much I could do, is what Francis said. Dan Evans, as we know right now, we're recording this live Sunday night. The uh, Dan Evans is in the final right now. He's up a set, and it was two two during uh what was it the lightning delay. So we don't know the result of the final at this time. But um, Dan Evans had a heck of a week. Uh, he also he played brilliantly against Grigor Dimitrov, did Dan Evans. So he's come out of a slump, and you can see he's got his zest for the game back. There's you, you feel the intensity and the joy out there, very emotive. And he's actually, I have to say, David, he's one of the more interesting players to watch. He's got so much variety, but the slice backhand and the ability to come forward and volley decisively. And he has, he's just got an interesting game, and he can give any of the top players difficulties as we know he has a win over Novak on the clay and he's uh I'm, I'm happy to see him uh, recovering his confidence as well as he has this week and we got to mention the other finalists right Talon Greek score if you had Talon Greek score versus Dan Evans in the final you uh should have went to Vegas or buy the most recent what is it mega millions now 1.5 billion <laughs> or something um great week for both those guys and again whoever wins that the 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 rain suspended match Heck of a week. Yeah, no, listen, Greek sport was terrific because Taylor Fritz had been almost unbreakable all week. And, and, and he was up a set and you figured, okay, this is probably going to be straight for Taylor. Not easy, but straight. And then from the middle of the second set on, Greek sport just blew him off the court. His forehand was just sizzling. And uh, it was one of the best performances I've ever seen him give. And so win or lose the final, it really doesn't matter that much. He's made... Uh, significant progress this week in, in D.C. And before we talk about the matches in both Montreal and, and the women in Montreal, the men in Toronto, we do have to say in Los Cabos, Mexico, and I think this kind of, I think they said next year, maybe it'll shift closer to when the Acapulco tournament is, like in the, in the you know, right after Del Rey is usually that tournament. But anyway, 7-0 Sitsipas improves to what? 10-0 lifetime versus Alex Diemenauer. Um, good to have CT Pass win another title, uh, um, you know, and and Demonardo went to get into the final. That both those guys are going to be tough the remaining uh, summer hardcore season. I stayed up till about one a.m. to watch that one. It was very enjoyable, <laughs> it was particularly uh, pleasing to me to see uh, to see Sitsipas looking happy and playing so well in in winning that match. And it was a couple of tough sets because he had early breaks that he gave up. But in the end, you know, he from three, four down in the second set, he won the last three games, only lost, I believe, three more points. And uh, that was an important title for him. As you know, he started the year off so beautifully in Australia, runner up to Djokovic at the Australian Open. Hadn't had very happy times since then. Uh, disappointing record since then. And uh, But this is an important step for him leading up to the Open where he's really never shown his best. Maybe this will be the year that we see the best of Stefano's at the U.S. Open because we know he's one of the best hardcore players in the world. And so I was glad to see him take that title. Agreed. All right, let's talk about some matches. And you and I joke when we when we like preview tournaments, we don't like to project that much because we never know what's going to happen. We don't have to do that at all in Toronto or Montreal, Steve, because there are such tough early round matches. It just goes to show how tough the sport really is. Let's start with the men in Toronto. Um, 
the first round, we just we mentioned him a little while ago. Francis Tifo plays Milos Raonic. He's been coming back from injury, has not played um, a lot of matches at all. Again, Raonic, this is his home country. And with the game that he has, he can take the racket out of your hand if he's serving like as as well as he has, you know, when he was playing well. Not going to be easy for TFO at all. No, no, not at all. I, I, I suspect that Francis will find some kind of a path to victory, but not easily. And as you say, that serve is still one of the, it's still incredibly dangerous. And so there's always the possibility that Milos gets Francis into a couple of tie breaks and wins the tie breaks. That's, that's how he wins that match if he pulls it off. Let's give Francis a, maybe a, a 53-47 edge going in, but that's no... That's going to be a, a no simple task to win that match. Another player we recently mentioned, Alex Demonauer. He plays Cam Nori. These are first round matches, people. Um, beating Cam is never easy. You know he will fight tooth and nail, and uh, not the most fun opponent to play because you know you're going to have to play very, very well to beat him. And Alex is coming off as we just alluded to that runner up finish against Stefanos in Los Cabos. So I think he, he's going to be confident, and you know he. he he's a, he's a very good match player and he's very solid from the baseline. And he's, it, that's, that, that again is almost a pick a match. I, I put the odds slightly against Alex, but not greatly. And, and, and he'll be confident coming off a very good hard, hard court week. And then I'll go potential second round. Some of these guys have buys Wimbledon champ is back now playing his first hard court tournament after Wimbledon, Carlos Alcaraz, he could play Ben Shelton in the second round if Ben wins his first round. Um, one thing about Ben, Stephen, I, I, I think you may be in agreement, but I want to hear your thoughts on it. I am not surprised at all and the up and down results that Ben is having from singles. He played very, very well in the challenger level, especially last fall. He makes his run in Australia. He shot up like a rocket. He was not going to have some growing pains. This is all still way too new. There is no need for the panic button at all. He's having fun out there. He's had success in doubles, as we saw in Washington, D.C. If anyone's starting to get upset with the results that they're seeing with Ben Shelton, you got to take a deep breath because he's just getting started on this journey. No, absolutely. And he's still there. There's, we're still looking at someone who's getting his education, you might say. It's still a, a relatively new to him and and Yes, things could not have gone more smoothly than they did in Australia. And that set himself, he set up his year by doing that. But you're right, you can't expect him to have solid results every week. However, if he does get to play Carlos, that's a nice opportunity to sort of let everything fly. And ho hopefully that his, the left-handed serve can give Carlos problems so that he can get his teeth into that match and, and make it tight. Not a, I don't I don't give him a great chance to win by any means, but I, I think we could be looking at a couple of tight sets or maybe maybe even Ben stealing a set along the way because Carlos is is trying to kind of get his get his bearings again after Wimbledon. You know, he went and played the Hopman Cup and he, he's, he, he may not be in peak hardcore form yet when he plays Ben, but that'll be a fun match to watch under any circumstance. It should be. And then another one I saw. I think Gael Monfils plays Chris Eubanks and the winner plays Tsitsipas. So we talked about the Wimbledon match that Chris beat Tsitsipas in the round of 16. There may be a second round rematch of that. And you know, Tsitsipas is going to be fired up for some revenge if that happens. Yeah, he will. Absolutely. But in turn, you have Eubanks who, who believes that he earned that five set win at Wimbledon and he did. 
and he's going to want to say to himself, look, I, I wasn't an accident. I, I, it was, it was hard fought. It was close. I could have lost, but I came back and got the five set win. And I, I'm going to show Stefanos that I can do it again. I agree with you in the sense that if I had a, I make Stefanos the clear favorite and coming off this title makes it even more so, but I still don't think he's going to breeze in that match. And if, if Eubanks is having one of his better serving days, then it could get very tight. But in the end, I would go with Sitsipas probably along the lines of 7-5, seven, 7-6, seven, something like that. All right, let's go over to the women's side. They'll be playing in Montreal. It was an interesting quali- uh, quali match. Final round, Jeannie Bouchard versus Danielle Collins. Collins won 6-1, 1-6, She plays Alina Svitolina in round one. And if Svitolina wins that, she plays Sakari in round two. This sport is not for the weak, people. I mean, these are draws that are so difficult. I can mention a Svitolina-Sakari match in a quarter of a slam, Steve. Oh, absolutely. No, that's a that's a, a, a terribly unfair draw for both players, frankly. It's it's fate, and it's happened, and they're, they're just going to have to deal with it. But, boy, I, I, I feel for both of them because it's too early for them to be meeting, given the given the level of their respective games. Sorry, frankly, sorry to see it happen, but the winner of that one is definitely the audience, the fans, TV and on site, because that's going to be a real treat to see something like that so early in the tournament. And then I got to mention two two, uh, U.S. veterans, Venus Williams still competing. She winds up playing Madison Keys uh, in the first round. Yeah, I mean, listen, Venus has played surprisingly well in her few appearances this year, and maybe maybe she can maybe she can push Madison. I think Madison is playing a little too well for her right now, but that's going to be really interesting to watch too. Can can Venus make enough of an impression with her own serve? Because I think she'll have difficulty breaking Madison too often. So that she's got to be serving near her best and finding the corners and locating it well. If she can do that, because again, I, I give Madison the edge from the baseline too. Toe to toe, I, I like her in that match, but I, again, I don't think we're looking at. And there's no, there's no route there. Those are going to be hard fought, tight sets. And two more for you. Um, interesting kind of storylines behind it. Jen Brady, who we referred to earlier, plays Ostapenko. Now, if you remember, and I was on site in 2021 in Cincinnati, Jen played Ostapenko, and that was like her last match because she got hurt. She couldn't complete that match, and she was kind of, she was hurt up to that match, and she was trying to push yeah. through, but she had to withdraw from that match and she did not play after that match until very recently. So that's an interesting matchup. Um, not easy uh, yeah, for I, both, it, both players. Yeah, it is. And I don't, we're not going to see, you know, with Ostapenko, she's so, she's infuriating to play against because she doesn't give you any rhythm and she's so capable of hitting winners early in points. So the, how well will Jen deal with that? That's going to be the key to me is, is she able to adapt? It's not going to be a rhythm match for her that she might prefer to play at this stage of her comeback. But on the other hand, you know, it's an opportunity. Last one I want to mention to you, and it's been all over the news, you know, Caroline Wozniacki is coming back. She's playing. If she wins her first match, Steve, she would play the Wimbledon champ, Marketa Vondrusova. So I, we don't know what to expect with Wozniacki, um, her level of play. I don't think she would go out there if she knew she would get blown off the court, but always interesting to see when someone comes back their first, first couple matches. 
And, you know, Carolyn, we, we think of her, you know, as, as being so resourceful from the baseline and so cagey. And I think of her having, a, I always think of her as being a great returner. So that will, that, that, you know, here she'll be playing this left-hander and tricky serve, but maybe she'll deal with it better than a lot of the players did at Wimbledon. So I th- and she certainly got to see her a lot at Wimbledon. So Carolyn, yeah, that, that'll be fascinating to see what kind of an impression she can make. It's asking a lot for her to win that match. But I just hope that it's, it's, it's a match that she can keep relatively close to give herself encouragement going forward, especially for the U.S. Open. Yeah, and she's still, again, before she even plays her, she has to win that first-round match. So we'll all be watching that as well. Um, no Novak yet, but he did sign up for Cincy. So um, he should be back in Cincinnati playing that. He only needs one. You know, he's done this so many so many times. He knows exactly what he needs to do to prepare. So we got Carlos in Toronto. We'll have Novak in Cincinnati, hopefully Carlos as well. Um, and then right around the corner is U.S. Open. I love this time of year when you are in the thick of the hardcore swing, all leading up to the final slam of the year. To me, Steve, it feels like such a long time from Australia to the French because you, after Australia, you still have very big hardcore tournaments with the Sunshine Double. Then you start the European clay court swing, which to me takes forever. You finally get through Roland Garros. You blink and you're already at Wimbledon. And then you get all these great hardcore events, boom, U.S. Open, and you're done. It's like the first slam, and then the next three are boom, boom, boom. Well, the other reason you feel that way, if, uh, I suspect, is that now with the three weeks between the French and Wimbledon, suddenly Wimbledon is closer to the U.S. Open. So the hardcore season is upon us in no time flat, and that's, that's why you feel that way. But I, I like this time, too. I love these lead-up events. Heading, I love Canada and Cincinnati and then getting to the U.S. Open for the last major of the season, and I think the players do as well. So it's, it, it seems like a shorter hardcore season in some ways, but uh, they'll all be ready for the Open, I'm sure of that. And I'm going to leave it to you for your final thoughts. I'll just kind of um, lead you into this one. Taylor Fritz, are you expecting him? He's, he's not had a good few U.S. Opens recently. Are you expecting this year – to be, uh, you know, maybe the turn, I'm not saying win it, but really impose his will, do much, much better than what has happened the previous few years in New York. I'm cautiously optimistic about that because I like these results in the last two tournaments that we just talked about. Atlanta win, Washington a semifinal. I expect that he can do something decent in Canada or Cincinnati, get a semifinal at least out of one of those two, maybe both. So come into the Open fully prepared, but also in his mind, priming for it. And I'm sure the, uh, Paul Anacone and his other coaches, Russell, that they're trying to find a way to gear him up to be thinking that way, finding a way to bring out his best on the biggest occasion like that. And Wimbledon, the scheduling worked against him. He was a bit unlucky there. But yeah, I, I, I think he's ready for a quarter or semi at the U.S. Open. Yes. Any other thoughts before we sign off? No, I've enjoyed it, David. We've we've covered a lot of ground. There's been a lot of really interesting tennis being played in the last few weeks and so much to look forward to in the weeks ahead. So uh, it makes me uh, eagerly anticipate our next podcast. Yeah, I love these draws because the all the you know, for the most part, all the best players play it and they're not 128 player draws. So obviously you're going to have huge, huge matchups so so early on. and, And and, you know, if you're a player, if I was a coach of a player, Steve, and I lost early 
to another really, really good player in one of these tournaments leading up to the Open, I wouldn't necessarily be so discouraged. And I wouldn't necessarily have my confidence shaken knowing that if this was a 128 player draw in the US Open, I may be playing that person in the fourth round or maybe even quarters, depending how it all shakes up. So I, I, it's eager to see, you know, sometimes you see someone highly ranked lose early and you're like, oh, they're going to have a horrible New York. That's not necessarily the no, case. No. A lot depends in context and who they're losing to early in these tournaments. Yeah, and, and conversely, there's no guarantee that if, if we had, say, a surprise winner in, in Cincinnati or Canada, that that player is going to now suddenly reproduce that form in New York there's just so much depth in the game. You can't look at it that way. And so that's what also makes it so interesting. You see, you can't be too sure of your predictions based on the summertime results. So much fun. I'm so excited to see these next few weeks. I'm so pumped. I know you are. Um, this, this was a lot of fun. I, I know we, we uh, took a couple of weeks off, so we covered a lot, but this was, this was great. Thank you so much for your time. Steve. Thanks David. I enjoyed it.